you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Well, howdy. Welcome back to Prairie Justice. We're here for Episode 8. We're going to talk about Action 47, the green cowl menace from uh, the spring of 1942. And yes, I am Ranger Gord, your virtually vexated and half-vaxxed vigilante virtuoso. That's right. I've got my first shot of the AstroVenica. Fake news. It's called AstroZeneca. Yes, I did get what you Americans might call the Fauci Ouchie, and I guess in Canada we would call it the Tam Wham, or here in Alberta I might call it the Hinshaw Washaw after our embattled public health officer, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. So if you haven't had the, uh, the vax, no matter where you are, do what you can and get in there and get it, because we need to get out of this situation as fast as possible. And I have absolutely no time or use for anti-vaxxers, mask slackers, or failed uh, moon landing conspiracy theorists. Um, you know what? You can live in your own little world. I like to live in a COVID-free world, a COVID-zero world. And uh, whatever we have to do to get out of it, let's get out of it. Well, we're here, like as I said, to talk about Action 47, which came out in April 42. Before we introduce that, I have a little bit of vigilante news, not much. Um, and we've been talking off and on through the winter here about the, uh, the rumors of a Stargirl one-shot uh, called the Stargirl Spring Break Special. And I do have a little bit of news from Comixology. They have officially are going to release this May 18th, 2021 for a price of $5.99. And I'm not sure if that's a U.S. price or it's sort of an international price. Whatever, it's too much money for a comic book. But uh, that's another editorial. And uh, here, leading from the uh, from the official DC description, legendary comics writer Jeff Johns returns to his breakthrough hero, Stargirl, in this special one-shot illustrated by Todd Nock. Courtney Whitmore's spring break plans aren't like your average high schoolers. Instead of hanging out with friends, she's heading out on an adventure with her stepfather, Pat Dugan, a.k.a. Stripe formerly Stripesy, and teaming up with his former team, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. The soldiers are forced to reunite again to unearth the secret eighth soldier of victory. But what other secrets lie buried, and what does it all mean for Courtney's future as Stargirl? Why am I asking you? Well, because according to the mock-up cover that I have seen, our friend the Vigilante is going to be in this book. We last saw Vidge in the Infinite Frontier special number zero. And that, of course, was a lead-in to take us over to this Stargirl special. And uh, as I write today, yesterday, uh, Infinite Frontier number one, I believe, appeared into my comicsology, And that's all I know. I haven't popped into it to see what's happening. Um, a Vidge appearance... 
that I was able to hear about within the last week or so, thanks to the gang at the podcast Legion of Substitute Heroes, was one that I did not previously know about. And apparently in um, Legion of Superheroes, um, and this I believe would be called Volume 2 or 3, depending on how you uh, count that, but it's the five-year-later Legion in that era where they talk about uh, the Legion's more on a, on a grown-up and in a dystopian sort of a basis. And at any rate, in, um, number, in, that, in that issue, um, there is a spot where several DC characters who are long dead because, hey, we are in the 30th century in that, uh, in that book. Um, are brought back to life, sort of a zombified uh, kind of rogues gallery of uh, 20th century heroes. And um, we have a ashen, gray-faced, Greg Saunders vigilante in there. He doesn't get much to do. He's just sort of there for how DC tends to use vigilante sometimes as uh, background material, just uh, a way to sneakily keep their trademark up on the guy without actually ever doing anything with him, which is a long-held complaint that I have rattled off on this podcast before. But at any rate, uh, so I was able to log that in and into his chronology for the year 1993, and as that is actually a setting in the year 2998 well it's going to be a while before i get to that period to that appearance but there's a good reason why i never didn't recall ever seeing that i was a regular uh, reader of the legion five year later uh comic i really enjoyed that series and i know i have a binder with uh, what i have up to that point but 1993 in the spring just happens to be where I took my one of my famous or infamous comic hiatuses as uh, life was starting to get me down uh, poverty wise and um, I just had backed off from my uh, comics reading file and wouldn't you know it uh, the dating on that came out to April of 1993 and I know I had dropped my files very very shortly before that so it was uh, amusing when I heard that on the, the Legion and I came running home after work, uh, ripped open that binder, flip, 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 flip. Oh, this is where I ended. So, at any rate, uh, there's a vigilante appearance that I certainly never expected or knew about. So, you never know. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to go to a podcast promo and they will we will come back and head right into our review of Action Comics number 47. A secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed. 
and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't? You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody's cruise the wall! So our vigilante tale begins in Action Comics number 47, and I guess ends there as well. <laughs> um, Action Comics 47, published by DC, Detective Comics Incorporated, 480 Lexington Avenue, New York, New York. All this information coming to you, by the way, from the good offices of Mike'sAmazingWorld.com, also known as DC Indexes. Great website. Uh, we are cover dated April 1942. That means that's when you would last see it on the stands. But it actually went on sale on the stands in February 18th, 1942. Uh, a monthly comic, 10 cents for 64 pages. And that'll be the industry standard for a while. Our editor is the legendary Frederick Whitney Ellsworth. Uh... Our 12-page story, The Green Cowled Menace, writer Mort Weisinger, artist Mort Meskin, and we aren't, again, we aren't identifying colorists or inkers. Um, so I guess Mike, who's usually very thorough, thorough um, does not know this information. I know no other way to look it up. So we wonder what else is probably happening in Action Comics 47 in this uh, month of February. On the cover, we have Vigilante's warm-up act. Superman! Throwing a man through a brick hot wall. He looks very Lutherish, but I think this is early for Luther. Oh, what am I lying? In this issue, Superman tangles with his super enemy, Luthor, in the startling adventure of the Power Stone. And uh, Luthor is bald. Um, I guess we're past the uh, Alexi red-haired Luthor at this point in time. And um, Luthor is commenting as he crashes through the brick wall. You can hit! And Superman goes, You want to see me when I really try! And so we go through here. And of course, as we say, we have the Power Stone, which is... Uh, I believe probably uh, it says by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, but I have a feeling that the art is probably being ghosted at this point in time. Possibly by Wayne Boring or someone else. Hi, 15 minutes later, Gord here. Uh, the artist on this Power Stone story is John Sakella. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, I will leave that to the Superman historians. Um, Luther at this point in time is... Uh, Sort of in a wearing, uh, he's bald, of course, and he's wearing a kind of green, I don't know, doctor's smock, 
uh, sort of a scrub situation, um, almost like hip length. Uh, I would call it a muumuu actually. And he's got on shoes and green pants underneath. So it's going to be a lot of years before we're ever going to see a Lex Luthor costume. He's just bad enough. Bob Fisher, this is probably a good uh, story to go back and look to. It, 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 the art and the story actually look really good on this. In Superman of America, Clark Kent is giving us a little bit of an editorial here about uh, how you can be proud that you're an American and that you can hold your head in the company of citizens of other democracies. Great Britain, China are good neighbors in Central and South America and all representatives of Europe's governments in exile. And he closes that we are all determined to remember Pearl Harbor. And buy defense bonds and stamps, of course, because we are into the war effort. Our uh, Canada Dry ad here has the adventures of Super Duper. And we'll be having the Vigilante feature, of course, uh, at length here periodically. But um, scrolling past him for the time being. Um, we have Busy Bill, the Bill, Busy Bill, the Bill Collector. Oh, that's a tongue twister. And I don't think I've ever seen this feature before. It's a two-page feature. Not sure who by. It looks sort of like a Henry Bolton off kind of a thing. And the three aces are back and they are at war. And they are in the comp combat zone. And they're fighting the Japanese. And uh, only they're not quite using that word. I think you can use your imagination. And the Japanese figures here are definitely the enemy. But to the credit of the uh, authors of this tale, they are not the of the bucktoothed variety. And then we have a gags feature. A lot of humor strips in this uh, edition. Uh, back to Mr. America and Fat Man. Where he is uh, seems to be fighting the skeletons in armor that are attacking the Statue of Liberty. So we are definitely in a wartime footing in this one as well, as the uh, you know the great uh, symbols of freedom in America are at at threat. And we have a very very unfortunate uh, humor strip, four-page humor strip, four-panel uh, rather by Henry Boltonoff called Chief Hotfoot. And the less said about that, the better. And we have a, a half-page ad for the spring issue of World's Finest Comics where Superman, Batman, and Robin are reporting for duty and saluting. Uh, text piece says V for Vengeance by Norman Goss. Two-page text piece as is sort of a requirement for these comics at the time in order to get uh, special mailing rates. And we once again we have the Superman radio show and a list of radio stations across the United States and Canada where you can listen to the Superman radio show emanating from Los Angeles, San Diego, Spokane, Tacoma, Detroit, Springfield, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Salt Lake City, Hagerstown, Knoxville, Tennessee, Omaha, Dallas, Tucson, Watertown, New York. Hello, Scott Gardner and uh, Scott McGregor. Oh, here's an interesting VONF St. John's, Newfoundland, which is, does not appear on the Canadian list, but it's on the American list, which is interesting because uh, Newfoundland at this point in time is a British colony that is temporarily acting as uh, under Len Lease. 
uh, to the Americans. And of course, after the war in 1949, Newfoundland will become a province of Canada. But at this point in time, Newfoundland is sort of running its own show. Uh, and we have Congo Bill, art by a man named Frey. He's in Africa, surprise, surprise. And he appears to be fighting some indigenous rebels um, off of a steamboat. Oh my god, and another one-page Chief Hotfoot by Boltonoff. So insulting, I can't even describe how insulting it is. <clears throat> and we finish off with Zatera the Master Magician, who seems to be playing Aquaman off the tip of Florida. And he's having some underwater adventures. Of course, in his top hat and tails. So that's what's happening in Action Comics this month. The Vigilante busts the door down onto the underworld headquarters of the Scorpion. A new monarch of crime flaunts his pack of murder minions with a sinister flourish as he flouts the forces of law and order. The Scorpion. Against the cunning brain behind the ruthless raids, a rip-snorting cowpoke of the Western Range pits Lariat lore and explosive fists. Follow the vigilante as he whirls in cyclonic pursuit of the green-cowled menace whose sting is death. The cream of society is gathered at the famous Victoria Concert Hall. And now, ladies and gentlemen, during the intermission of our special Aid the Allies Benefit Performance, you will have an opportunity to contribute to this worthy cause, and we urge you to be generous. Bravo! Pretty girls with baskets circulate through the theater. A thousand ought to help. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been generous. We have collected $50,000. Thank you. Now, our concert will resume with a selection by our string quartet. Those men aren't the Haddon string quartet. Suddenly. Oh! Look, machine guns in the violin cases. They're taking the money. They shot the master of ceremonies! We'll take care of those crooks. Ow! Okay, fellas, let's scram! Then the daring thieves exit the stage door to make their getaway in a waiting horse and cart? Get under those blankets, we ain't got all day! They'll never guess we're making our getaway in the creeping old jalopy. In no time at all, the police arrive at the scene of the crime. See anything suspicious, Phil? No, sir. Those crooks had a supercharged automobile. They sure disappeared fast. A short time later, somewhere in the city. <laughs> you sure got a brain, boss. <laughs> and the cops don't suspect. Good. You shall be well rewarded, men. Now, to prepare for our program for tomorrow night. Say, boss, do we have to go after these benefit jobs? It ain't exactly right. <laughs> Sentimental chaps, aren't you? Well, 
Yes, no. <laughs> Sorry, Shorty. But we have no place for sentiment in this organization. <laughs> Poor fellow. I was fond of him. I really was. Now, men, tomorrow night... The next night, in the heart of mysterious Chinatown, a festival is in progress. Hey, little, 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 49, 49, 49, 49, 50,000, 50,000, going, going, gone, sold to gentlemen for $50,000. Rich man and poor man unite in a common cause. You paid $50,000? Is money well spent for a good cause? Also present is young stuff, youthful Chinese friend of the vigilante, and his grandpop, Lin Chu. See stuff. The rich have contributed precious jewels and art objects, and now they are being auctioned off. Yeah, and the vigil will be here soon to see that everything's okay. Say, Gramps, who are those guys with the gas masks on? Don't excite yourself so, stuff. Most probably they're march in parade later, representing the gods of war. Suddenly! Oh, yeah? Well, why are they shooting at the lanterns? What's this, a gag? Horrors! Great clouds of smoke pour from the bullet-riddled Chinese lanterns. I can't breathe! <laughs> it's choking me! Tear gas, they're phonies. Hey, they're gonna knock off the auctioneer! Like a striking snake, a noose writhes through the billowy smoke. Yipe! Followed by a hurtling figure. Hiya, fella. Oof! Say hello to your brother rat for me. Oh, my head. East is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. Till now! I'd better beat it. Before the gas or the vigilante gets me. <coughs> Later. Boss! You fool. My perfect plan spoiled. Those lanterns specially prepared. Costumes, gas masks, and you stupid dogs let one man stop you. Are you two? Meanwhile. Giddy up, you gasoline eating bronco. We're nearing the end of the trail. Yeah, and that lantern-jawed stooge thought he was giving us the slip. Moments later, outside the scorpion's lair. There's only two men down there, and both appear to be dead. Uh-oh, one is moving slightly. This looks almost too easy. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's break in. No sooner said than... Yippee! Easy stuff. I'm still not convinced this setup isn't a phony. Your imagination is running away with you, Vig. Here's the coyote who thought he was running out on us. Yeah, but here's the funny-looking duck on the table. The lifeless body of the scorpion appears to be slumped over a table. That was the scorpion. He drilled me when I told him how we muffed the Chinatown job. But no one does that to Big John and gets away with it. Before he could bat an eye, I slammed six slugs into him. Yeah, six. 
<laughs> he folded like a busted balloon. Uh, I'm done for. The Scorpion, eh? Never heard of him. But we'll find out who he really was right now. The Western warrior and his Eastern sidekick bend over the slumped figure when suddenly... Don't move, vigilante. Trapped! Can I give him a bellyful, boss? My trigger finger's itchy. Hey, Veg, look, the scorpion's alive. And the other guy, too. Such a death would be too simple. Take him alive. <laughs> Pretty clever, eh, vigilante? You see, unlike many who deal in crime, I never underestimate my opponent's wits. <laughs> Big John's acting was superb. Superb. <laughs> Suddenly, with cat-like speed. Actors, eh? Well, let's get some action in this scene. Whee! Second act, curtain going up. Good expression. You're in the wrong profession. You sure had us fooled, Big John. Congratulations. Stop them. Do something. Kill them. Anything. But the scorpion's frantic cries go unheeded. <laughs> if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. Slowly, the dynamic duo advances toward the master menace. Come and get me, vigilante. Bring the brat along. A pleasure. I wouldn't miss this for anything. The partners in crime-busting lunge forward, only to be met by... Gas! Ugh! Oh! Surprise! Ah, uh, this is indeed ironic, Vigilante, that you should succumb to the same gas attack you foiled in Chinatown. But enough of this play on where the time has come for your demise. Later... How do we get out of this pickle, Vidge? I don't know, partner. From the looks of things, you're going to be hot stuff, and I'm going into a slow burn. Well, well, the gas has worn off, but the gasoline treatment should prove more permanent. Good night, gentlemen. I'll give your best to the cows and chickens. He's gone. What did he mean, Vidge? Simply that when the flame from the candle burns the rope, the candle will drop into the barrel of gasoline. Phew, I feel warm already. Slowly, the flame eats at the rope. Weaker and weaker become the supporting strands. Gee, Vidge, when the candle falls and ignites the gasoline, there won't be enough left of us to scrape up with the rake. Scrape? Did you say scrape? Boy, am I dumb. And with puddles of gasoline right under my feet. Quickly, the vigilante scrapes his spur on the cobbled floor. A spark shoots out. It works! The western waddy strains his rock-hard leg muscles against the flame-weakened bonds. You did it, Veg! You did it! Am I surprised? But the job's only half done. Digging his spurs into the wooden post, the Veg shinnies up to the top. Now if I can get my arms over the top of this post before the candle drops. But no! The candle plunges down as the valiant range rider leaps off the post. Get me loose or I'm a cooked goose. Flames burst all about as stuff is set free. We didn't come from any frying pan. 
But we're sure in some fire. Don't give up yet, Stuff. We may have the last laugh yet. You see, Stuff? The scorpion took my guns, but he didn't take my bullets. The vigilante places the bullets in a pile by the door. Seconds later... Say, how'd you know that the heat would cause the bullets to explode before the flames got us? Well, I figured that we could outlast a little old bunch of bullets. Inside the burning den of crime. The motorcycle's still here. What a break. Climb aboard. We're going to give our personal regards to the cows and chickens. Say, what's that the scorpion said when you left us? That's right, partner. And he's going to be sorry he said it. Giddy out. In the meantime, at a barn dance, benefit for the USO, unsuspecting merrymakers are shocked into silence by menacing guns. Line up against the wall and you won't get hurt. Maybe. Shortly. All set, boss. I got every penny. What a haul. Ha. Good. Let's go. As the insidious group exits, suddenly... Ghosts! Ghosts, eh? You've been reading too many horror stories. Vigilante? Apparently they aren't ghosts. Yet. Get them. Now you can haunt houses. Uh, oh, missed! Hey, don't do that. I can't stand the noise. Come on, he ain't so tough. Hmm. That takes care of them. All tied up, nice and comfy. The scorpion, he's disappeared. Uh-oh, what's this? Watch out, vigilante. <laughs> if this bomb tractor doesn't flatten them out, nothing will. A juggernaut of destruction, coming straight at them. What can the vigilante do? In a flash, the vigilante hops on his motorcycle. Stay here, stuff. Keep an eye on the buzzards we tied up. I'll try to stop this murder-mad hyena from running wild. Mow him down, Vig! And scoops out the path of the thundering tractor. Rats! Then stops a short distance away. Now you come get me, Scorpion, and bring that toy with you. Coming, vigilante. Well, the motor's gone dead. Looks like I'm next. My kingdom for a horse, if I had a kingdom. <laughs> In the darkness, neither pursued nor pursuer sees the cliff before them. Suddenly... For a moment, only bubbles mark their descent into the murky water. Whoop. Then a head pops up. It's the vigilante. Later. And you couldn't locate his body? Looks like the scorpion outsmarted himself. But why did he rob benefits only? Your guess is good as mine, Stuff. Perhaps he was an agent of an enemy government sent here to weaken our morale. Or merely that he thought benefits would be easy pickings. What do you think? At any rate, the scorpion's sardonic laugh will never more be heard, for he has gone to a watery grave. Or has he? Hmm. The end.
And now, Greg Sanders, Rodeo Radio. Well, seeing as how the Scorpion seems to be a bit of a pirate, and he sure knows his tractors, let's hear from Edmonton's Captain Tractor and the last Saskatchewan Pirate. Well, I used to be a farmer and I made a living fine. I had a little stretch of land along the CB line. But times went by and though I tried, the money wasn't there. And the bankers came and took my land and told me fair is fair. I looked for every kind of job, the answer always no. Hire you now, they'd always laugh, we just let 20 go. The government, they promised me a measly little sum. But I've got too much pride to end up just another bum. Then I thought, who gives a damn if all the jobs are gone? I'm gonna be a pirate on the river Saskatchewan. And it's a heave, ho, hi, ho, coming down the plains, stealing weeds and barley and all the early frames. And it's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmers by your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. The local farmers would know that I'm at large But just the other day I found an unprotected barge I snuck up right behind them and they were none the wiser I rammed the ship and sank it and I sold the fertilizer Bridge outside and those jaws spans a mighty river Farmers cross in so much fear their stomachs are a quiver Cause they know the captain tracked us hiding in the bay I'll jump the bridge and knock them cold and sail up with the hay And it's a heave, ho, high, ho, coming down the plains Stealing wheat and barley and all the other grains And it's a ho, hey, hi, hey Farmers by your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores Bobby chased me, he was always at my throat He followed on the shoreline cause he didn't own a boat But the cutbacks were coming and the mountain he lost his job So now he's sailing with me and we call him Salty Bob A swinging sword and skull and bones and pleasant company I never pay my income tax and screw the GST Sailing down to Saskatoon, the terror of the sea If you wanna reach the co-op, boy, you gotta get by me Ha-ha! It's a heave, ho, hi, ho, coming down the plains Stealing weeds and barley and all the other grains And it's a ho, hey, hi, hey Farmers by your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores Life's appealing, but you don't just find it here I hear in North Alberta there's a band of buccaneers They roam the Athabasca from Smith to Port McKay And you're gonna lose your sense and if you have to pass away Well, winter is a-coming and a chill is in the breeze My pirate days are over once the river starts to freeze But I'll be back in springtime and now I have to go I hear there's lots of plundering down in New Mexico And it's a heap, ho, high, ho, coming down the plains Stealing weeds and barley and all the other grains And it's a ho, hey, hi, hey Farmers by your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores And it's a heave, ho, hi, ho Coming down the plains Stealing weeds and barley and all the other grains And it's a ho, hey, hi, hey Farmers by your doors when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores And it's a heave, ho, hi, ho Coming down the plains 
Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just love saying that. Who is that fair-haired menace? I, I'm sorry, that was mean. That was Shay. He doesn't have any hair. Thanks, Shay. And now my notes on the green cowled menace. So I think my notes will be brief this time. Most of these stories are self-explanatory and starting to get a little bit episodic. That doesn't mean I'm tired of them or anything like that. It's just that we start to see some of the same tropes over and over. But we've got a few new things in this story. And uh, once I'm done my notes, I want to do something a little different. I want to relate a little bit of history regarding one of the his historical aspects I'll give you history on history of something that we uh, will be discussing in the throughout the story, something that will be appearing. We start on our splash page, but uh, I often think this is one of the best parts of the story in these Mort Meskin tales. Is uh, he always has these very evocative, moody, we splash pages that introduce the story and then also uh, accompany Wesinger's uh, textual introduction. And uh, the neat part about this splash is most of them have, have been rep pretty representational of what you're going to see in the story. Uh, this one is actually a scene that could have happened within the story just at a different angle. So Vigilante crashes into the Scorpion's headquarters, I almost said headlights, and uh, crashes through a door. It looks like a very substantial door. So Vig is being very dramatic. He's obviously ex extremely agitated. Um, everybody, of course, is armed. We see our first glimpse of the scorpion right here on the splash. And uh, true to Meskin, we've got lots of silhouettes. So um, the silhouette of the scorpion is also... Uh, up on the wall looking very much like the shadow thief if you're familiar with that old hawkman villain and there's a stairway leading down to the you know the usual card table dungeon inside the scorpion's headquarters and there's sorts of things that i like about maskin is the stuff that's scattered around you know it might be an old church because there's a couple of uh sort of a stained glass windows in the stairwell there seems to be a motion picture camera, the reel of a motion picture camera that's uh, sort of occupying the space in perspective down in the lep uh, bottom left-hand corner. And something that's going to be um, used inside the story that we won't really see much of is a couple of gas tanks. Well, by gas tanks, I mean compressed air tanks. If you're familiar with welder's oxygen tanks or resuscitative oxygen tanks, that's what these are. They're very large, about oh, about four feet high, three feet high, with uh, complete with the gauges and the hoses. And we won't be able to see that kind of detail on this later on. So it's sort of interesting how um, we're setting up the scene for something that doesn't occur for about five or six pages here. And I guess to get the elephant out of the room first, this is our first glimpse of the scorpion. And I think this is the first actual costumed villain 
that we have seen in the vigilante stories. Normally we've seen, you know, your your standard goons in suits and fedoras and our mastermind has usually been somebody in a cloak or some kind of a variation of a suit like the Rainbow Man's tuxedo, that kind of a thing. Here we get an actual skin tight acrobat type suit. And when I first look at this, um, he's wearing a, a green cowl and cape that seem to be attached, a yellow tunic. And so that's sort of the theme of here, yellow and green. You know, I first look at this, it reminds me of another Silver Age villain, the Mirror Master, um, from the Flash comics of the era of John Broom, Carmine Infino. But as you start to see the villain later on, the, the costume's extremely familiar, and I want to explain that. It's extremely evocative of a costume that was worn by two superheroes. One was the Sandman, and one was the Tarantula. Now, sometimes when we think of the Sandman, we think of the guy in the mask, uh, the gas mask and the business suit and cloak. But in the mid-1940s, or certainly mid-1941, rather, the costume of the Sandman was changed sort of to reflect uh, the greater interest in superheroes in acrobatic costumes. And uh, that costume was very similar to what the Scorpion is wearing here. He's got sort of a half cape. And the coloring is actually very similar too, although the Sandman's would be um, yellow trimmed with purple. And of course that uh, costume would be streamlined by Jack Kirby. Their original costume, by the way, using Mike's Amazing World again, uh, would have appeared in uh, Adventure Comics to um, October 1941. This modification of the Sandman's costume, um, changing from the, the suit to the yellow costume, was designed by our friend Morton Weisinger. And it was later streamlined by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon when they took over the book a couple of issues later and then introducing Sandy the Golden Boy. And that's where you get those great uh, Simon and Kirby Sandman stories that appeared throughout Adventure Comics. Tarantula is a different matter. Tarantula first appears in um, Star Spangled Comics in August 1941 so about the same time you know we're we're getting into late summer 1941 and the tarantula was first designed by artist Harold Wilson Sharp but guess who the writer on the tarantula was when he appears in Star Spangled Comics number one Mort Weisinger so Weisinger has designed both the original acrobat costume of the Sandman and the costume of the tarantula and those costumes are virtually the same. Now, if you go up a little, well, quite a bit further into the 1980s, Roy Thomas revives the Tarantula in All-Star Squadron number 18 in that original costume and then changes the costume to the uh, what we're more familiar with as the Tarantula's costume, sort of brown and black costume that he'd used through the run of All-Star Squadron. And in All-Star Squadron 24, uh, we get one of these great Roy Thomas retcons where the Sandman meets the Tarantula and they comment on the similarities in their costumes. 
So if you ever want to track down number 24, it tells the whole story and has got a bit of a tragic uh, backstory to it as well. And I believe that was also uh, recovered in his Secret Origins origin later on in the All-Star Squadron run. And unfortunately those have not been reprinted, but I think you could probably find single issues in uh, other sources. Quarter boxes, if you can know where to find those, or uh, possibly on Comixology. I'm not sure if All-Star Squadron's appearing on Comixology yet or not. And uh, by the way, DC, get on with it. We need All-Star Squadron reprinted in Omnibus, please. Gosh sakes, you're putting other things in Omnibus. And, of course, that's a backdoor plug for A World on Fire, the All-Star Squadron podcast, which will be covering this character again. So I thought it's very, very interesting that Mort Weisinger is taking his Sandman and Tarantula designs and putting it on a character called the Scorpion, another Spider-Man character, and making him a villain in the Vigilante. So, in uh, my rant on the elephant in the room, if you call it a rant. Now we meet at a benefit, and the, this benefit is, uh, I guess they call they just say worthy causes here. It's a concert that seems to uh, raise about fifty thousand dollars out of pocket change out of the audience. So this is obviously a, a hoi polloi sort of a thing. So the uh, the rich and wealthy of New York City have come out to this aid to the allies benefit, and which of course is robbed. By the gang of the scorpion and that's going to be a motif for the scorpion he's going to be uh going to war benefits and war bond rallies and things like that i, I love their getaway their getaway car is a horse and cart because who's going to be looking for a horse and cart or a bunch of criminals that just robbed the benefit we finally meet the scorpion and interesting how Mort Meskin draws the scorpion in relationship to the other characters. It's almost like Meskin has been ordered by Weisinger or somebody to say, hey, let's use this Sandman costume over here. Let's lampoon ourselves or our tarantula costume. And, uh, and Meskin is sort of saying, you know what, this is ridiculous and I'm going to make it look ridiculous. And he does. The scorpion in relationship to the other characters is drawn very needle-nosy, very cartoony. And he doesn't have that uh, same gravitas that he gives to his own gangsters. And of course the scorpion does what we've seen a lot of these gang leaders do in vigilantes uh, uh, stories. One of the mobsters maybe has a little bit of a change of heart, doesn't like the idea of robbing war benefits. Hey, you know, I'm a crook, but I'm not a, I'm not a complete jerk. I don't like taking money out of uh, good causes' hands. Well, Scorpion has absolutely no patience for that, and of course dispatches that. And the interesting thing is he'll, this is sort of a Chekhov's body, he'll later use this entire body to disguise himself. And we go to, again, to Chinatown. Weisinger and Meskin really like Chinatown. This is probably about the third time we've been here. And we see Lin Chu and stuff again. And unfortunately, Lin Chu and stuff and the people of Chinatown are colored very coppery. That's sort of a, I don't know. I, I think the color palettes just weren't very good for these uh, production people in the 1940s. But a lot of it is just plain, you know, ignorance. 
But having said that, the story itself treats the Chinese community in Chinatown very well. Um, they are running a bazaar for Chinese relief, and of course they want to take uh, send money back home to uh, for the people who are suffering against the Japanese invasion. And so there's an auction. The auction is uh, is hit with gas. Like even though it's an outdoor event, everybody is hit with gas. And the auctioneer is robbed from all of the money he has just he's just raised fifty thousand dollars too. So obviously, uh, people are very very generous in New York City in in trying to raise war relief. Gas is going to be a thing, and in the middle of this gas attack, page five, the first time we see the vigilante come in, because he has promised stuff there will be security. Now an interesting thing happens. Suddenly, stuff's uh, copper tone. He's back to a flesh tone. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny from page four to five. We change our, our racial skin colorings. They let a man named Big John get away. Big John. Big bad John. And the scorpion has uh, sort of rigged a, a plan ahead of time with Big John. And then we see Vidge and stuff on the motorbike. We're back on the motorbike. And it must not be a very good one. I don't think Vidge is enjoying his new contraption. He's calling it a giddy up your gasoline eating bronco. And you see the bike itself are going putt, 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 putt. So obviously this thing has some uh, mechanical difficulties. I don't know if this is the same motorcycle that he uh, commandeered from the policeman in the last story. But likely it is. And now we see a new angle of what we saw on the splash page. Vidge and stuff busting down the door and into the uh, Scorpion's hideout. But all we have is Big John. He's been thrashed to death by the Scorpion. And the Scorpion appears himself appears to be dead lying over the table. Well, of course, that's the thug that Scorpion killed and then dressed up in his own body, in his own costume, rather. And Big John has given him a cock and bull story about how he took out the scorpion. And that, only, that ruse only lasts about four panels. The gang arrives again. Vidge and Stuff put up a very good fight. Uh, cowboy fighting and ninjutsu. And finally he overcomes them with... Remember the gas tank? There we go. Chekhov's gas tank. <laughs> the... And he hits them with the gas. And interestingly enough, the scorpion's not wearing a gas mask. But of course, he's also behind the nozzle. And he puts them into, I think, was one of the most realistic death traps that we see. And of course, he's going to leave them there. Just a barrel of gasoline and a candle. And I just can't imagine anything more dangerous. Um, let's face it. You put gasoline in an enclosed room with a flame, that's going to go off at any point in time. Um even if the candle's a long ways away from the gas itself. Um, the fumes are going to cause that candle to accelerate, and eventually that rope is going to become saturated and fall down into the gas tank. And guess where Vidge and stuff are? Tied up right next to the barrel itself. It looks to be about a 45-gallon barrel. Of course, you know, these. Uh, I think these masterminds must not talk to each other. Because I think by now, as we're into the eighth uh, adventure of the Vigilante, they should realize to take Vidge's spurs away. 
because he always seems to be able to cause a spark or a short circuit or anything with this. Midge basically decides to fight fire with fire and he uses the, some little leaky gasoline under his feet uh, to cause some sparks with the spurs. And uh, you know what? I do believe in the reality of this one. It won't take much to cause gasoline to, uh, to spark off. And Vidge decides to, uh, to fight the fire even further. He empties his 45s, leaves his bullets on the floor, and we just know though that... Uh, I know a little bit about gunpowder, and it's got a very, very uh, low flash point. It's going to go off at any point in time. And as long as you're not in range of where those uh, slugs are going to come out of the jacket, well, it's going to cause a very nice little explosion. So I'm not sure if he's using all six bullets or 12 bullets. And this is about the only time, by the way, that we're going to see Vidge even take his guns out. He's going to remove his own bullets, leave them in the fire, and that's it. So this uh, gun-fighting vigilante, he hasn't used his guns for quite a few, event, um, quite a few uh, adventures. Now, one of the uh, things that the scorpion did before he left him in the death trap, because of course he leaves people in the death trap, is that he's going to give their regards to the cows and the chickens. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, when Vidge and stuff uh, managed to find their, their bike still parked outside, uh, they get on there and Vidge remembers that, that line, the cows and the chickens. And Vidge correctly realizes that somewhere outside of the city, the USO, the United Services Organization, is having a barn dance benefit. Keep them flying. So this is obviously a benefit for the US, United States Air Force, Army Air Force at this point in time. And uh, the barn dance is robbed. Interestingly, we really don't see the barn dance at all or anybody from here. We just see you have an overhead representation of a barn with the sign on it. It says barn dance proceeds for USO. Keep them flying. And all we really see is the participants with their in silhouette with their hands up. Well, Big John is here. And when Big John sees vigilante and stuff, he starts to think, think he's seeing ghosts. Well, we quickly have a Donnybrook and the, the gang is overcome because Vig and stuff always do. And always two-handedly, two-fistedly rather. And meanwhile, the scorpion has just come up with a brilliant weapon. A farm tractor. Oh yes, he's found himself a nice of what I'd probably say is a Fortson 9N. There we go, Tractor Geek uh, cast here again. And he's going to run over the vigilante and stuff with a farm tractor. Now actually, uh, you think a farm tractor would be pretty slow, but you know what? You put them in road gear and uh, they can pick up a quite a bit of speed, especially if they have surprised uh, vigilante and stuff. Well, Stuff manages to get away, but Vigilante says, well, let's have a duel here. So they're going to play chicken, footloose style, only Vig is going to use his motorbike. And remember I said the motorbike isn't in really good shape? Well, he starts to charge at him, and of course the bike dies. And at this point in time, they, see, they must be near an oceanside or a riverside uh, site here where this barn dance is being held, because Vig leads them over to a cut... Oh, the tractor over to a cut bank. And I guess the scorpion is too inflamed with uh, revenge. And he go, the vidge and the tractor 
go, go right over the edge into the river. We see ripples in the water and spoilers for an 80-year-old this month comic. Vigilante comes back up. Tractor and the Scorpion are still in the briny deep. And of course the story says, what do you think? Were we ever going to see the Scorpion again? Did he survive? Well, spoilers again, no. This is it for the Scorpion. So one thing you'll find in 1940 stories, they don't have a lot of time to develop. Uh, sometimes even their own plots. Um, this is only 12 pages. There's a lot of action. Uh, we've got a lot of fighting and a lot of fisticuffs. One thing that I have not seen go missing in this story is Greg Saunders. Well, clearly he's here, of course. He's the vigilante. But what I mean is the act. Greg Saunders, the prairie troubadour, the cowboy singer. Where is he? He has been uh, pretty much the alter ego seen off and on. And sometimes you just don't have room to do everything. But we've had, uh, within the course of this, we had three entertainment benefits, all of which were robbed. And Vigilante was obviously um, not at the first one. And he was security for the Chinese bazaar. Uh, so he couldn't be there. So what about the barn dance? Well, this goes back to the cows and the chickens. When the scorpion said to uh, and Stuff as he left him in the death trap, I'll give you your regards to the cows and the chickens. Well, of course, that was a hint to the vigilante, but uh, why was it a hint? Well, the hint, of course, was Greg Saunders, quite obviously, was scheduled to be perform at that USO barn dance. You know, you're not going to see him at a gala benefit with the string quartet. You're not going to see him at a Chinese street bazaar, other than in his uh, playing security for, for his friends Lin Chu and stuff. So obviously, uh, Saunders, the Grappari Troubadour, had been booked up. He knew this would be a themed benefit, and of course, uh, out of all New York, who would have been a better entertainer to have been at that barn dance? But of course, Greg was all tied up, literally. But he got there in time to, um, to basically save the benefit and save the proceeds. So that put me to mind that maybe I should talk a little bit exactly what the USO is. I always like to insert a little history into what I do here in these uh these reviews. I know you many people come here for the comics and but I'd always like to put something a little bit more, a little more gravitas, a little bit more of me. And what I do is I like to stitch history together and uh, I just happen to have um, in one of the manuscripts I'm working on a little uh, story from the days of the USO. So if with your permission I'd like to go ahead with that. Um, anybody need to go anywhere? Somebody need to pick up some kids? Whatever. Okay, tell you what. I'll just record it, and then it'll be here when you get back. Thanks. Let me take you now to September 9th, 1942. In San Francisco, the Western Defense Command issues British-born Leslie Towns Hope of North Hollywood, California, the required permit to enter Alaska. America's Northern Territory had suffered bombings, invasions, and submarine warfare and was thus under military rule and restricted for travel to non-military travelers. 
so you had to get a permit to actually enter Alaska. But this was no ordinary civilian. He was a slick-haired, smooth talker whose uniforms came from tailor shops. His weapons were self-deprecating charm, rapier-like wit, and a machine gun delivery of topical one-liners. But over time, this dapper man's visitations to dangerous war zones became an American asset, one said by war planners as worth a division of infantrymen. Of course, I am talking about Leslie Hope, who was much better known as Bob Hope, British-born, but an all-American comedian, movie actor, radio star, and a mostly an ambitious bon vivant public personality, with the mission to bring an iota of laughter and glamour to scared, homesick young men who never knew which day might be their last. Now, Bob's tours were under the aegis of the United Services Organization, more commonly known as the USO. Social reformer Mary Ingram had organized the USO in 1941 as a non-profit corporation. Ingram's USO consolidated the efforts of several other organizations including the YMCA and YWCA, the Salvation Army, the National Catholic Community Service, National Jewish Welfare Board, and the National Travelers Aid Association in delivering social programs to stateside serving GIs in training at bases across the U.S. The USO was essentially morale in entertainment form, and they supported GIs on leave or furlough with very simple amenities such as club rooms, dances, coffee and donut socials, building and equipping movie theaters. Volunteers acted as pen pals to give lonely servicemen a proxy friend to write home to, or to help military wives with respite and child care that were on uh, bases far from their homes. With the United States' imminent entry into the war, uh, simple yet vital goals were accelerated as the USO sought to draft both capitalism and America's high-profile entertainment industry into the war in effort, underwritten by private capital and delivered on a global scale by musicians and movie stars. The organization became most prominent with its partnership with Hollywood and staging of the USO camp shows. Pulling in the stable of the William Morris Talent Agency brought performers like Al Jolson, Mickey Rooney, and Martha Ray to domestic shows in October of 1941. And actual overseas shows began with a tour of naval ships in port and Caribbean bases in November 1941. While Pearl Harbor moved Bob Hope in ways that a comedian who'd never spent a day in the armed forces ever realized he could be capable of. The stars had instantly thrown their hats into participation in the Victory Caravan, a bandwagon of nationwide rallies featuring big-name screen and radio stars whose true purpose was to sell the Treasury War bonds. Proceeds from their subscription bonds was sorely needed by the government to finance the costs, high costs of waging war. And it probably goes without saying, for the performers themselves, this was a volunteer effort. As a participant in the, in the Victory Bond rallies, Bob knew enough to keep his trademark ski slope of a nose out of political or military commentary, but war fever stretched that restraint. Hitler's always talking about his spring offensive, but brother, that guy's offensive all year round. His humor was popular thanks to regular radio broadcasts and a prolific slate of films. He'd do no good as a soldier, sailor, airman, but he found another way to serve his country, utilizing that very celebrity. Once the hardware was paid for, who would see the morale of those that the government was sending around the world to uncertain fates? 
Checking his ego and his good fortune at the door, Bob wanted to do more than sell bonds while those who made him famous sacrificed everything. How could I stay safely home in the U.S. putting on shows when all those casualty reports were in the daily newspapers? There was something wrong about sending boys overseas to their possible deaths while their entertainers were working at Sunset and Vine and eating dinner at the Brown Derby. You had to go overseas, where the danger was, to be truly appreciated, and I was determined to be appreciated, even if it killed me. Having mastered the arts of radio during its golden age, Hope com hosted Command Performance for Armed Forces Radio, which was beamed around the world on shortwave. As, arm, as the armed forces mobilized, they could he, tune in and hear, Hi, this is Bob Rubber Drive Hope, telling you guys out there that we're all going to keep tuning, turning in our rubber suspenders till we've caught the axis with their panzers down. Hope's first camp show, broadcast from March Field at Riverside, California, persuaded the USO planners that morale was going to be a weapon in this war, and an overseas tour of the Pacific was planned. At the time, Hope was shooting a movie for the Goldwyn studio, They've Got Me Covered, based on his own best-selling book, when an old friendly face walked onto the set for a visit, in uniform. Lyle Moraine had been Hope's movie stand-in, he, but he was on furlough from the Alaska front where he'd been serving as a sergeant. Moraine told him how forlorn and bereft of entertainment those northern bases were, and how a little Tinseltown glitter would improve morale. The War Department asked me to make a trip to Alaska and thaw out some of the troops from Juneau to the Aleutians, who had been waiting for someone to explain to them what they were doing there. Since there was no shooting reported in the area, I bravely agreed. In a biography, Have Tucks Will Travel, Hope relates his inspirations to visit less hospitable climates amid the, amid the build-up of the Aleutians. My aerial marathon was to put on shows for servicemen during World War II and began in 1942 when I was at Goldwyn's. I'd played some of the shows at nearby camps and had gotten a taste of it when I heard that Joe E. Brown and Edgar Bergen had been to Alaska to entertain the troops. I said I'd like some of that. Francis Langford, who was on my radio show, said I'd like some of it too. There was a brief delay, but only a brief one, while her husband John Hall told her, You can't go. You have symptoms of acute appendicitis. Francis said they have doctors in Alaska too. End of argument. Bob self-deprecatingly refers to his coward's persona by admitting that he didn't want to invite the big band vocalist Francis Langford along, counting that the army would never allow a woman entertainer of her profile to tour in harm's way. And likely she wouldn't sign on. Then Hope and the army learned of Langford's spunk. That was before I realized that Francis was really Joan of Arc, and happily went places where a guy like me could get killed. Once she realized she had become a symbol to our soldiers of the girls back home, nothing could stop her from performing on the very edge of the battle zone. Even when those more faint of heart were ready to turn back, I could never persuade her to follow me. Joe Brown and Edgar Bergen's tours had ensured Hope wasn't the first big-name radio jokester to hit the last frontier, but after consulting those colleagues, he decided to make up for lost time. His brother, producer Jack Hope, asked the War Department and the USO to organize a northern tour to take place after Bob's Pepsodent show on the NBC radio network took its summer break. Washington was delighted and quickly gave the comedian the green light to build a touring cast. To kick off his first tour, uh, Hope put in, 
had it in turn to kick off his first tour hope had an entourage of uso volunteer talent guaranteed to sing dance and yuck it up to crowds of grateful gis across lonesome northern posts that most in the lower 48 couldn't find in an atlas usually traveling with a full orchestra the entire skinny ennis band was away in uniform still hope planned to outshine the house lights with a lean entourage as planes and accommodation would be tight there would be no stagehands handlers agents or any other hangers-ons just four entertainers including himself francis langford the broad mustachioed comic jerry colonna and jazzy guitarist tony romano who hope said was so slim he could have used him as an italian pipe cleaner bob dubbed his casts as the hope gypsies the favorite timing would have the show touring Alaska in the summer, but the filming of They Got Me Covered ran over schedule and didn't wrap up until September 5th. That left little time for Hope and Entourage to pack their gear, as he'd planned a hard departure on September 8th. That corresponded with a planned broadcast of the first Pepsodent show of the next season that was to tape on September 22nd. So to accommodate his tour, NBC arranged for Bob and Hope to cast to perform the program from Seattle once they'd returned. For vaudevillians who'd sang their supper, for their supper and chased the railroad timetable throughout the Depression, hectic schedules were part and parcel of the trade. The USO umbrella meant military transportation, security, and hospitality. But following cocky also meant traveling at the whim of the Army Star, not the one on the dressing room door. An Air Force transport flew the troop out of Burbank's Lockheed Airport as planned, bound for Fairbanks with refueling stops San Francisco and Seattle. At Frisco, a telegram awaited the troop from Alaska Command, cancelling the tour, warning of bad weather and an inability that the Army may not be able to get him back for his uh, radio broadcast and on the 22nd. Bob was hearing nothing of that and wired back. Four thespians, bags packed with songs and witty sayings, ready to tour your territory. Have been informed due to lack of time. Trip is off. Please let us make trip and we will take our chances. The clock ticked off 12 hours before a terse three-word response came back from the north. You leave Tuesday. It was cryptic, but it came from the desk of Alaska Command General Simon Bolivar Buckner. And that could only mean the trap trip was back on. Upon arrival to Fairbanks, the entertainer's entry permit caught up with them as a late dinner was hosted for them at Ladfield's Officers Club. There Bob met his liaison, Captain Don Adler of Special Services, and dined with two young USAAF lieutenants, Marvin Willie Seltzer and Robert Gates, the pilots who would be delivering Hollywood to the troops that Bob called God's Frozen People. Both airmen were barely into their 20s when they were ordered to the naval base at Kodiak, where they were both to get checked out in a Lockheed C-60 Lodestar at the disposal of Admiral Robert Theobald, but a, a craft that was rarely used by that admiral. The two flight lieutenants got their orders cut from none other than General William O. Butler, commander of the 11th Air Force. You've got to go pick up the admiral's airplane and, and go up to Fairbanks to pick up a USO show, said Butler. Gates quizzed, a young pilot with more in his mind than pop culture. He asked, what's a USO show? 
Again, given ske schedules and wartime off-the-grid placements, military men wouldn't have had a lot of connection with or paid attention to the activities of a celebrity. And Butler and staff shared Gates' lack of familiarity. Uh, we don't quite know what a USO show is, but we think it's a bunch of entertainers. And they have top priority, so take good care of them. Orders were orders, and the two pilots flew off to Fairbanks for their mystery assignment when their mental tumblers kicked in. We walked into the officers' club, and lo and behold, there was standing Bob Hope and company. The pilots were surprised to shake hands with the movie stars. The comic was surprised to learn the ages of his flight crew. Setzer from Pomona, California was 21. South Dakotan Bob Gates was 22. Hope shot back to Gates. You still got growing pains and a nickname was born. Gates endured the sobriquet of growing pains happily for the rest of his extended life. Setzer just got a similar tag. Bob's simply called him Junior. Gates and Setzer explained that all of their flights would, if they could help it, be daylight trips for a plethora of reasons. Standard aircraft communication such as radio letdowns and navigational beacons were still in evolution in the north and unusually and unavailable in the great wide open. In the event of a forced landing or bad weather, crews and passengers would need the advantage of the fleeting fall light. With that, Adler showed Bob to the base's VIP headquarters and Francis bunked with the nurses. But all were urged not to get comfortable. Sleeping arrangements when they got to the upcoming bases were going to be on the GI Bill. They first went from Galena to Nome, Umnak, Whitehorse, Northway, Cordova, Valdez, Anchorage, and thence to Annette Island, Cold Bay, Naknek. And early the next morning, the Hope Show appeared live on air of radio station KFAR and posed for publicity stills. Then it was off to board their Lockheed Chariot and their first show in Galena, Alaska. One of Bob's show openers uh, played contrary to the pilot's use. This is our first trip up north and the army's really taking care of us. They gave us a plane that was flown by a four-star general, General Pershing. I knew it was an old plane when I saw the pilot sitting beside me wearing goggles and a scarf. It was a 10-day tour and though the calendar said it was late summer, Alaska was spiraling into autumn temperatures that sent a chill into California entertainers. It's so cold up here, I could never tell what time it was. Every time I'd pull my watch, it'd just start rubbing its hands together and hollering, either I get mittens or I quit. There'd be no hotels, just quick and dirty steel half-round Quonset huts that everyone in the north bunked in. Sleeping arrangements were crapped, windswept, and cold. Bob called them an upside-down foxhole, where just preparing for bed was a chore. It was so chilly that when I started to go to bed that night, I had to use an ice pick to untie my tie. Frances had to improvise her own women's quarters because she was the only woman on any of the bases. With flying and slow show schedules, there would be little sleep anyway. Bob said the troops he met were the loneliest guys in the world, and the coldest. When the crowd of GIs gathered to hear our act, the applause was muffled by heavy gloves, but the laughs echoed off the frost of their breath. But the shows warmed up everybody when Bob mouthed his standard line for introducing the female talent. Here's what you're fighting for. And then the ravishing Francis Langford came on to stage. 
Whenever the gypsies arrived in a camp, she appeared to be likely the first woman many of the men had seen in months. I got out of the army truck first and started making a speech to a bunch of the soldiers. Then Francis got out of the truck right behind me. The doctor says in a few months you won't be able to notice those footprints on my face. One old sergeant who had been stationed up here in Alaska for three straight enlistments just looked at Francis and said, What is it? But when Langford opened her cherubic mouth to sing, the wolf whistles melted away as she crooned out the Irving Berlin love song, What'll I Do? Then the homesick G.I. struggled with their tear ducts on the sentimental favorite, My Buddy. In interviews conducted before her death, Francis was quoted, Entertaining the troops was the greatest thing in my life. We were just there to do our job, to help make them laugh and be happy if they could. I'd sing a song and I could see just see the guys getting this faraway expression. I knew they were going home in their minds. Her rendition of Isn't It Romantic brought answers from howling wolves outside in the night. And there was a response from male wolves inside the tent too. The ballad sent one soldier into a human crying fit so bad that a brother troop threw his arm around him in platonic support. Publicity writers dubbed her the G.I. Nightingale. Another stop was across the mainland of Alaska to the Bering Strait port of Nome. So remote to the men they called it Devil's Island. Making sure to plug his sponsor, Bob opened with a topical play into his name while introducing himself. This is Bob Alaskan Army Base Hope, telling you to always use Pepsodent, and you'll never leave your teeth lying in a chair and get Bitka when you get Sitka. Then it was out to the Aleutians, where on Umnak Island of 3,000 troops of Fort Glenn stood in the rain, defying pneumonia to welcome their guests. It's worth noting that at that point in time, the Aleutians were very much in a state of total warfare. With the bombing campaign against Kiska and Imperial Japanese Navy submarines and warships at play in the chain of islands. Bob quipped, We did a show for a bunch of flyers who had just come back from a bombing mission in dense fog. We never found out whom they'd been bombing. I'm not sure they knew either. Bob and company performed their first international show when their plane dipped down the route of Alaska Highway into Canada to perform to 1,300 engineers and dirt movers who come out of the bush and followed their survey stakes to meet the Hope Entourage at Whitehorse, Yukon. It wasn't always possible to publicize the shows in advance. Cross-territory telephone communications was quite primitive. Radio communications was entirely for the purposes of aircraft direction and under wartime authority. A high-profile flight would not likely be of either high priority or be broadcast over the airwaves unencrypted. Thus as was possible, the gypsies would blow into camp without warning. I tell you, it's really great up here in Alaska, and they were certainly glad to see me. The minute I stepped out of the plane, they started following me and across the field and applauding. Gee, who'd have thought seals listened to the show? And somehow the show would play on Bob Hope's whim. On one fuel stop at Northway, a forlorn post on the Alaska Highway, notable only for its airbase, Bob's gang pulled out all the stops to do a quick unscheduled set for just 40 base personnel. The quartet took turns sharing their stage, a tree stump. It was vaudeville in the Klondike. You heard about the airman who was making his first parachute drop? His lieutenant told him which cord to pull and told him when he hit the ground there'd be a station wagon waiting to drive him back to the base. 
The airman jumped out of the plane, but when he pulled the cord, nothing happened. As he plummeted towards the ground, he said, and I'll bet the station wagon won't be there either. In his autobiography, Hope revealed that that particular station wagon tail was at the expense of his brother, who had taken basic training in a paratroop unit. Little did Bob know that before his tour wrapped up, that joke would be turned on him. Adhering to the daylight flight practice, the cast would usually fly in the day before and or the day of a show, play in either afternoon or evening, and spend the night in the Quonset barracks bunks, and then move on to the next camp. That was the plan after the Cordova mid-afternoon show, but then the brass pulled rank. Anchorage had planned to hold an evening street dance, and General Buckner wanted the army to show off Bob Hope to the festival. So their flight would have to go in in post-dusk hours. That was Bob Hope's explanation. The pilot Bob Gates had a different recollection, and oddly recalled that the show site was Valdez. The mid-afternoon show had begun at 1,500 hours and had played to 300 servicemen, after which they were to get underway for Anchorage. But the base commander informed Hope that the other half of his contingent were unloading ships at port and missed the performance. Could another show be staged? Of course we can. The pilot gates protested they couldn't fly in the dark if they waited to finish the encore. But Hope insisted and insisted on going ahead to Anchorage after. Without the authority to overrule anyone, Gates acquiesced and sat it out until the curtain call. Whatever the case, the Lodestar left at 1930 hours into the late summer light, planning to make Anchorage, an planning to make Anchorage just after dusk. Whatever the case, the Lodestar left at 1930 hours into the late summer light, planning to make Anchorage just after dusk. But never say your plans out loud to the weather god of Alaska, as Hope recalled. No sooner were we aloft than we ran into a combination lightning and rainstorm and began to bounce around. We felt as if we were flopping back and forth between two giants who had somehow gotten the notion that we were a badminton bird. We buffeted along that way for 45 minutes. Only Gates and Setzer knew that some of the rain had turned into sleet that iced up one of the twin engines. They were losing altitude at 200 feet per minute amid the coastal mountains, some of which towered at 13,000 feet. Setzer tried to do Bob Hope's job, quipping that back home in Pomona, the Chamber of Commerce censors the weather reports, and California sleet is frozen orange juice. But as the flight quality deteriorated, so did the pilot's jokes, as another storm erupted, this one in the cockpit. Setzer and Gates argued loud enough to be noticed by the frightened passengers. We could hear the pilots having an argument in the cockpit. Then they slammed the door. That didn't help our peace of mind. The storm was bad enough, but to have our pilots arguing worried us even more. We liked these pilots, but they seemed to be kind of young to be juggling our lives. The buffeting continued for another 20 minutes, with no communication from the flight staff, bringing little relief to the passenger confidence. Finally, the air travel savvy Bob noticed the aircraft was circling and asked Crew Chief Sergeant Dubowski what was happening. The answer came. Lightning had knocked out the radio and in the storm, the pilots were off the beam. They couldn't zero in on the Anchorage Airport's beams or receive any landing instructions from the tower. No one told the passengers at the time, but the plane had to circle because they didn't know where the airport was among the mountains. 
Soon the plane's mechanic appeared packing some gear and ordered Frances Langford to stand up and fitted her with a parachute. Before that came the inflatable life vest that only male airmen would nickname as the Mae West after the buxom 6X kitten of early moviedom. Of course, they wouldn't have to explain that to the passengers. These stars likely knew the real namesake. The mechanic only explained that's in case we land in water. Then he turned to Hope because we might have to jump. You put on a parachute and a Mae West too. The comedian shuddered at the prospect. I thought this is it. I felt chilly. I looked out a window but I could see nothing. So I said my prayers. I knew that if you jumped in Alaska, especially in a storm, the odds against you were fantastic. I'd heard that the water was so cold you'd live only 45 seconds in it. Hope had taken his lovable coward character all the way to the bank in films, but in this flight he truly was fearful and for once could find little to say. But he well knew his responsibility as the show's leader and tried to keep his quivering lips stiff as he struggled to cheer up the starlet when Francis asked, What do you think? All the comic could come back was to instinctively fall back on his shtick, recycle the punchline of that same joke he'd been telling on the tour. I guess when we land this time, the station wagon won't be there either. Bob had no memory of whether the one-liner calmed Langford's nerves, but his were shot. I was trying to be funny, but my teeth were chattering and my delivery was bad. It was as unhappy a moment as I'd ever had. Especially Bob realized that he'd recruited Frances of the objections of her husband on health grounds. Frances was calm, and even a little giddy at the prospect of the jettison. This thrilled me more than anything, for I'd always desired to make a parachute jump, and it really looked like the time had come. Bob and Jerry were really surprised when they saw how excited I was. They thought I was, would be scared to death and would pass out completely. It couldn't have been a braver face to present. Gates recollected that Bob came up to the cockpit, tapped me on the shoulder and said, They're all on their knees praying back there. Gates had little time for comfort and grumbled, Tell them to keep praying, because we're going to need all the help we can get. Hope played on that. Never did so many men think so seriously about getting down on their knees without even one pair of dice. Jerry Colonna pulled an army issue wool toque down over his head and shivered against the cold. The fog was so bad the passengers couldn't see the props from the windows and likely wouldn't have seen that one prop was not turning. Gates never told Hope that the craft was down to one engine. Gambling on memory, he descended to 6,000 feet, hoping to find some evidence of an airfield. Then, like the climax of a movie, the plane's faded passengers were hit by a light out of the clouds, blasting through the glass of the windshields and port windows. Thankfully, the ray emanated not from the heavens, but from Elmendorf Field at Anchorage. You didn't have to tell Junior and Growing Pains what to do. With no radio to transmit instructions, the pilots followed the luminescence and directed the lodestar down to the field. Gates exclaimed, we saw this big glow, circled, and landed. Running only on visuals, the plane hit the runway crosswise, wait, crosswise. But that didn't matter. With the wings covered in ice, they couldn't taxi and cut the engines as soon as their tires touched. Finally, the craft halted without incident. Any landing you walk away from is a good one. The light was no accident, and in fact inspired by a near wreck that the pilots were unaware of. A United Airlines pilot had landed and told them that he'd felt the backwash out of an out-of-contact military plane. 
The Lodestar was so close to the civilian, both nearly collided in midair. In one of Hope's later biographies, he claims to have heard the prop wash of the other plane, but he likely didn't know what it was at the time. With that information, either Buckner or Butler, or both, ordered 30 anti-aircraft searchlights to probe the clouds. Setzer and Gates saw the beacons and had been able to home right onto the sideways field. In the near future, airfields would adopt the technology of ground-controlled approach that could guide a plane in on, through fog and other emergencies. With the plane safely at rest, officers ran out of the terminal to greet the passengers, orderly deboarding. After securing and fully powering down, Gates finally left the plane. Bob Hope rushed over and hugged his pilots and cracked, Okay, let's go to the barracks and change our drawers. The comedian never forgot Gates and Setzer and ordered two pocket watches for both men inscribed, Thanks for my life. There is some insinuation that the U.S. Army Air Force was not nearly as forgiving of the pilots and that the distribution of the parachutes in May West may have been a ploy to get Hope's cast to shut up. The memoirs of the radio operator had heard that Williams, Willie Setzer gained some manner of infamy as he, as he was the pilot with transporting the Bob Hope show. As I recall, they hit bad weather near Naknek on the return to Elmendorf, and he had his true break-out-the-chest-type parachutes to the passengers. Needless to say, stuff hit the fan over this scare tactic. Whatever reprimand was issued, the pilots must have gotten past it. Over the course of the war, Bob Growing Pains Gates would fly Bob Hopes overseas to more U.S. shows in Europe, and also as a troop transport pilot for the renowned 101st and 82nd Airborne Regiments. Bob Hope never let a good story die and dined out at the experience at socials and dinner parties for years. It was his gift to find the humor in everything, but even the slick Hope remained contrite as he was, as he too landed the aimed to land the punchline. I couldn't have gotten on another plane after an experience like that. From then on, I, I'd have done my un traveling underground by mole team. But it didn't affect me like that. I've flown a million and a half miles since. It's like falling off a horse, and I don't mean a studio prop horse. If you get right back on, you're all right. However, I didn't sleep much that night. You don't have to fly all over Alaska in a storm to remember you're heavier than air. With the main act safely aground, General Buckner endorsed the U.S. tour to its star attraction. What we're suffering mostly from up here, Bob, is cabin fever. Some of the boys have been stuck in these godforsaken outposts for more than a year. With old books, old newspapers, and old magazines, old movies, and stale relationships. You have no idea what you're doing to uplift the morale. Bob retorted in his snappy fashion. Well, I've got some old jokes to go with their old books and magazines. On September 22nd, the weather threatened to hamper their flight out of Anchorage to Washington State. NBC's backup plan to slide in Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy into Bob Hope's slot wasn't needed as the Hope Tour made Seattle a day early and they performed the first live Pepsi show of the season from Fort Lewis, Washington, adding another military feather to his road cap. Despite that harrowing adventure, the troop was back on board after the broadcast and back in the north for five days to complete their obligation to Alaskan troops. With that complete, they winged south again to Seattle for another Pepsi and Show broadcast, and finally, back home to Hollywood. <coughs> <coughs> 
Were there regrets after Bob caught up in his sleep and changed his drawers? Was Movieland's favorite chicken willing to sit out at war at Paramount? In fact, he couldn't sleep in his own bed again and couldn't wait to visit more soldiers, sailors, and airmen as the largest conflict in human history played out. I wouldn't trade this trip for my last five years in show business. My lucky years. I tell you, a guy gets to see himself in the proper focus in a setup like that. It's touching to think that the visit of a mere human being can mean so much. Yes, Hollywood won't see much of Bob Hope from here on out. I've got other plans. There was no need for a private yes Leslie Hope in uniform, and the War Department probably would have rejected a comedian pushing 40. No, the war effort needed Bob Hope on a stage, not the parade ground. Bob and Francis Langford faced close combat fire several times on three fronts, Italy, Algeria, and in the South Pacific. Langford and Kelowna would recount their wartime roadshow travels in books and columns. The USO sponsored an incredible 400,000 performances between 1941 and 1947 from the who's who of music, film, and stage. But no star took to the outpost microphone with more heart than Bob Hope. Together, Hope and Langford performed 65 U.S. shows around the globe. Alaska even figured in one of his flicks. Though filmed in Hollywood, the Klondike Gold Rush was the setting for 1944's Road to Utopia, the fourth of the farces made with friend and foil Bing Crosby. As Bob said, Alaska and the Aleutians seem safer than they probably were because they are such lonesome country. But the Coast Guard can tell you there was some rugged action in Alaska in the Aleutians. What you think went on at Katsarine Pass, Salerno, and Casino, the only reason to get cold feet in Alaska was the climate. The 1942 roadshow was the first of a half century of visiting American troops in deployment on foreign soil amid the uneasy Cold War era. He'd sing, dance, and cut up in Berlin during the airlift, in the Korean, Vietnam, and the first Persian Gulf Wars. His pilot in Vietnam was again Robert Gates long past his growing pains as a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. Gates and Hopes remained the best of friends for life and partners in founding a Florida Retirement Village project. Bob Hope brought a touch of down-home normality to those who could not be home at all. Many were performed during the Christmas holidays, televised so the G.I.'s loved ones at home could also be in on the event. The Hope Show would return north for many base tours of the last frontier. One racy standby gag poked fun at the 49th state's sexual loneliness. Last Christmas in Alaska, I met a GI who was so lonely he was going steady with his tattoo, and his buddies kept asking him if he's got a sister. With age in television came a definite change in Bob Hope's personal comedy style, relying on well-rehearsed, slick, custom-written jokes softened his edge and defanged his biting wit. But he's always be there for the troops in 57 tours over 49 years. By the 1960s, though the Vietnam anti-war movement criticized the establishmentarian shows for supporting the aggressor in the controversial conflict, the aging comic remained steadfast. He embodied the USO in urging stars and starlets to consider their good fortune and give back their talent in personal service. Only the problems of advancing age silenced his plane's engines in Christmas 1990, when at the age of 88, he headed a show in Saudi Arabia for troops massing for the Gulf War that would begin in a month's time.
With the brief war over, he hosted a victory concert for returned Marines, his final USO show. Bob Hope's remarkable life ended in 2003, just weeks from his own centenary. And that, folks, is uh, one of the stories that I've written for my book uh, that I hope will be coming out in a few years. Thanks for your patience on listening to that. So we will close out with mail call, and I do have a few missives, all from our good friend Dave McElvaney, who writes about our previous episode, number seven. Uh, greetings, Ranger Gord. Another fun look at a fun story. I enjoyed the Golden Age goodness of the characters of Rainbow Man and Dictionary. Dictionary reminded me of Big Words of the Newsboy Legion, although Dictionary seems less intelligent than Big Words was, more of a show-off than a really smart person. I particularly heard enjoying hearing the Rainbow songs playing under your description of the story. Rainbow Man seems gimmicky enough to be a Silver Age villain, although perhaps a little less bound to his theme. I wouldn't have expected a crook with a rainbow theme to use white ambulance and hospital white coats in one of his jobs. I guess he was focused more on all colors than on the traditional seven colors of the rainbow. And Richard of York, you battled in vain for red, orange, yellow, blue, green. Let me try that again. Sorry, Dave, I screwed up your quote. Richard of York gave battle in vain for red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And yes, you're right, Dave. Uh, white is really not so much a color as the absence of colors, whereas black seems to be the combination of all colors as that goes. Yeah, Rainbow Man, he, he is what he is. He's uh, gimmicky, and uh, it's funny he didn't uh, survive into some sort of a Silver Age um, incarnation, although you could probably say Crazy Quilt, who began with the Boy Commandos and sort of uh, has been a Batman family staple for a while, is is very close to that. But uh, we're going to see lots of Rainbow Man in these Vigilante stories. Uh, Dave continues, I continue to enjoy the radio drama format and your musical choices, as well as your tidbits of information about comics of the past and the present including that this story gave us the first use of a motorcycle by Vigilante. I'm glad to know that you've gotten several good reviews, and I should tell you that my iTunes still shows up under that title, that is, uh, Hulk Car, rather than on Apple Podcasts, and that, yes, I am Hal Car. That's a secret identity I chose in the early days when many people were using pseudonyms to shield their real names. I don't worry about that these days, but then there are some venues and I'm logged in under that name, so I still show up as that. So, thanks for the fun, and I'll be back for more. Live long and prosper. Dave McElvaney. And if you remember back oh, a couple of episodes ago in our feedback section, I was giving our, our various addresses. And... Uh, I actually, I believe I challenged, sort of off the cuff and didn't mean to, for people to actually send in some issues, maybe the Twitter and the email and all of the gadgets, and send in some actual real mail. Well, do you hear this, folks? 
Those are cards, folks. Not letters, but cards. Due thanks to USPS, Canada Post, and the mystery that is the current state of the U.S.-Canadian border, I have no less than four postcards. And guess who they're from? Yes, Dave McIlvaney. And so I am on a list now, and I am proud to be on the Dave McIlvaney reading list. And yes, he actually sent me a uh, great uh, um, sort of, uh, I would call these uh, affirmation cards. Reading, the adventure continues, and uh, he, Dave writes, May your life be filled with grand adventure. Live long and prosper. And uh, this is one of my favorites. Best postcard ever. And that's just what the postcard says. As promised, Ranger Gord, you've been added to my postcard list. I'm starting with the best podcast postcard ever. Sorry, I think I just editorialized. And I believe... So if you want to call it the best podcast ever, um, well, we'd all be lying. And uh, another one has a picture of a good old Smith Corona typewriter. And you know, from where I sit, I have a Smith Corona. When something goes wrong in your life, just yell, plot twist, and move on. And Dave writes on the back of it, I hope you don't experience too many plot twists. Live long and prosper, Dave McElveney. And my favorite here, greetings, Gord. Maybe a happy memory for you, the Hall of Justice. Live long and prosper, Dave McElveney. And yes, this postcard has the Hall of Justice, meanwhile. Better known as the Cincinnati Museum Station Center. Uh, originally the C Cincinnati um, Union Train Station. And by the way, it still is a train station. And thanks to it being a train station, I have been in this building. And not realized that I was even in it at the time. Uh, I, I actually spent my 50th uh birthday in Covington, Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio, thanks to my wife. We came in on a steamboat from Pittsburgh and we left Cincinnati on an Amtrak. Now basically uh, I didn't really know about this building when we were there so we never went there during our, our brief couple, two and a half, uh, day and a half stay. And when I told the cab driver we need to go to the Amtrak station, this is where he dropped us off. He says, you mean the museum? I said, sure, whatever. And I noticed this very opulent building. As I said, it was the middle of the night. Didn't really catch on to what it was until after we'd left. And that it is indeed the model uh, of, for the Hall of Justice in the Super Friends cartoons. And you have to realize that I never grew up with the Super Friends. Uh, they, the, that uh, cartoon just wasn't... Uh, I was a little old for it. And at any rate, none of our Canadian stations had ever picked that up for its Saturday morning content. So by the, I don't think I ever saw an episode of Super Friends until I was probably 22 years old. And finally got, saw it on a cable station when I first moved out on my own. So, thank you very much, Dave. Um, you can send me mail if you want. If you need my mailing address, I'm not going to put it out here on the air. You can email me at the addresses that will be announced here in the, uh, in the closing outro. So, with that, 
thank you very much for listening. I hope uh, the Bob Hope thing didn't scare you off from ever listening again, but I do like to hold, throw a little bit extra into these shows. Um, we'll be back with episode nine when we're back. I'm, I'm back to work now and back on the road. So recording happens when it happens and not before. So meantime, in between time, um, happy trails to you folks. In the corner of a dark bar room Said an old cowboy singing western tunes Singing songs that he learned as a child All about the west back when it was wild well, So long partners, you've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast All materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email can go to vigilantecast at gmail.com. Website is www.rangergordsroundup, all one word, at .wordpress.com. And we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the Cowboy Crusader. Vaya con Dios, compadres, eh? Because he's the last of the same.